Hello everyone! This is a special commentary to celebrate over 100 listens on Hotel Daydream. We finally made it. Not the biggest, most grandiose milestone, perhaps, but a very significant one. I sincerely thought that I would maybe only get 100 listens once I had maybe 10, 20 episodes out, so the fact that we're hitting this right here at episode 5 is a big deal to me at the very least. And more importantly than anything, I want to tell all of you thank you for listening to the show. If you haven't listened to it yet, um, this is going to be a very confusing entry point, but I hope you enjoy it all the same. I'm not going to tell you what to do and how to listen to whatever you want. You, you do whatever you like. I'm just happy that you're here giving us an old listen. But this is going to be a very chill commentary. I'm just going to walk you guys through a couple of the behind-the-scenes things, maybe a little bit about the show. Not too much of a concrete plan. I just wanted to set something out there to celebrate the fact that we got to this little uh, milestone. I think a appropriate place to begin is actually kind of where the show came from, because there's lots of different things out there, especially in audio dramas. There's lots of horror, there's lots of whimsical things, there's, there's so much imagination on display, and especially in the community that I've kind of stumbled into when starting this show. I, I can't say how thankful enough I am for that, and also just the sheer amount of inspiration I get from hanging around all these amazing people all the time. That said, there's not too many things like Hotel Daydream. It's so eclectic and esoteric that it's not necessarily trying to pat myself on the back. It's something that I've just had to reckon with as I try to describe what this show is about to people. Because much like the tagline, it's a hotel for everything imaginable and real and everything in between, which is a whole heckin' lot. And it's hard to break that down to parse it into categories or some kind of elevator pitch to give to people. I don't still know really how to package this show. It's it's like I've dug fistfuls of like random assortments of interests of mine, math, science, history, philosophy, wordplay, absurdism, various ideological studies, and I just have two fistfuls of them and I'm just like proffering them to people and like, here, listen to my my inane jumble of, of interests. Because that's really what kind of the show boils down to. Where it came from is, I'm not as a brag in the slightest, but uh, several years ago, I was a, getting my MFA, a master's in fine arts, I was doing creative writing, and the program was just not for me. It wasn't necessarily bad. I've had to take a lot of time to unpack the uh, baggage that's come along with that show, thinking I was a terrible writer and lots of other things. That's a, a whole other story for another time. But I was wanting to have something that gave me a little more leeway than the writing in that program did. So I'd write down these little sketches of just absolutely anything, any creative burst that came to mind. I would sketch it down and I would try to knit them together with the barest minimal narrative framework that they all were a part of this strange magical hotel where anything and everything could happen. And I didn't really have any purpose for that. That was just kind of a vent creatively so that I didn't feel completely crushed when I was a part of this program. 
But fast forward a couple years, I've graduated. I still teach at the college where I graduated from. I teach English. I love that job immensely. But when it came to actually doing some creative stuff, I was trying to look through all my old notes and other ideas. I get ideas constantly. I am surrounded by notebooks. I carry a little notebook on me all the time. I have notebooks above my, like, headrest on my bed. I carry one in a backpack wherever I go. I have notes apps on my phone. I am surrounded at all sides with ways to record ideas because I get way too many, and most of them are, in, if not completely incoherent, at least fairly so. So trying to not only write it down but provide myself context for later on is crucial for actually f figuring out what to do with them. But I'm looking through all these different notebooks after I've graduated, I have a master's, whatever that really means, and found these old kind of sketches. And my partner and I had recently been on a stint of doing lots of theater, we were trying to do a creative break, and I was trying to branch out and do some other things. And I had always enjoyed audio dramas. I've been a big fan of Welcome to Night Vale for a long time, the Silt Verses, a lot of the things off of the Rusty Quill network. I've been my jam for a long time. A lot of the ways I've creatively stayed afloat uh, in the midst of otherwise very, very barren creative landscapes is a lot of very, very rich, amazing audio fiction. And so when I finally kind of got a breath and was like, okay, what do I want to do creatively? I naturally wanted to turn to that. This isn't the first show that I've written and tried to do things for. There's another one that my brother and I release semi-annually called the Distant Silence Radio Hour. It's a kind of an anthology horror thing. It's hosted by a Lovecrafty monster. It's always a lot of fun, but it it comes out when it comes out. It's not a regular thing, and part of that is we want it to be really good. Um... But it's also a joint effort. It's based on the time that we both have to contribute to this. So I wanted to have something that I could kind of call my own and work on in my own time. And you ask anybody who knows me, I am very esoteric and eclectic in terms of my interests, just pulling from various different places. And I really like not having any bounds on what I can do creatively, what kind of stories I can tell. I know for a lot of people, and for a long time, having that little bit of a constraint is arguably very helpful. And I think the constraint for this show is it has to fit into some kind of hotel-themed narrative. It's got to have some kind of problem related to that. It's got to relate to characters. It's not just wordplay and absolute absurdity, which happens fairly often, but I digress. I started the show with the few notes that I have. I cobbled them together. The first episode is more or less an exact copy of those notes. I've added a couple things from those original random sketchings and whatnot. Um, part of that was to round it out to a more even-tempered... That's not the right word. But a, a, a more... I, I can't think of the right word for it. But a more predictable 20-minute kind of runtime. So the episodes run about 20 minutes is the goal. That means about 3,000 words per script, and I added a few more things uh, when trying to get there. But by and large, the first episode is that, ran uh, that random scribbling of notes from many years ago that's just an outpouring of whatever I could think of and any and all the fun I could have in a, in a story. 
one of the most key features in the fir- very first segment of the first episode is about Chan Master Dao Ji and the Statue Garden and all of that. And one of the things when I try to describe the show to people and I say that it involves mythology and math and science and philosophy is, al- although probably, arguably not intentionally, most people, including myself, we default to a very Western-centric idea of what those concepts and those disciplines include. Because when I say mythology, most people immediately jump to, oh, you're talking about Norse mythology, or Roman gods, or Greek goddesses, or things along those lines. And I think that's, if not necessarily a problem, I do think it's a missed opportunity. An opportunity I wanted to try to take advantage of in the show, because if I'm going to if I'm going to call the show that it's has room for everything real, everything imagined, and everything in between, then it can't lead and it can't have Western things at the forefront. There are there's there's no sense of inclusion, and I don't see mean that like I don't want anybody or any like different different cultures and other things like to be a part of the show. No, it's I I it personally think the language of inclusion, quote unquote is inherently problematic because it assumes that there is a center group that is then that then has the authority to reach out and invite others capital o others into that circle and while that seems like a nice gesture and it's bringing more people together it does have an inherent sense of hierarchy about it which doesn't feel great when you're talking about entire people's cultures and mythologies and collective identities through folklore so part of the challenge of trying to think about Hotel Daydream and how it brings so many different things together is I couldn't think of it from an inclusive perspective, meaning I needed something that, as a baseline, already assumes anything and everything already belongs here. There's no extra effort that needs to happen to qualify why I would be using, you know, Atlas from Greek mythology versus, you know, a Vedic god from Hindu scriptures and things like that. Not to, of course, belittle or be disrespectful to those various different beliefs, which is something that I often have to be very diligent in when I'm doing research for this show. But it's more to say, what's a way that I can perceive all of these mythological traditions such that not one doesn't have preference or precedent over the other and i think the answer i ultimately came up with is that it's there's no exclusatory there's no boundary that says this is where what's in and this is what's out there are different things within the world of hoto daydream that are like that because at the end of the day i'm just anthropomorphizing lots of different concepts and ideas and people are people. We we work based on having in-groups and out-groups, and how we navigate and negotiate those things is a deeply human thing to do. So the characters and us as people can't really escape that, but in terms of what material gets included into a given episode, there's nothing that's off the table. Anything and everything has to be there. And admittingly, there are times where I fall down more of a rabbit hole, where I start looking into a, a more specific strain of mythology or specific character from a uh, given culture's mythos. And I really like those, and I want to tell more specific stories about those. So it's not that the show will never lean in one direction or another. It's just, 
it can't give overdue preference to things that belong to one cultural tradition or another. That's the ideal, anyway. I, as I will talk about here in a minute, have already made a lot of mistakes in trying to understand and use and incorporate um, other mythological traditions. Uh, most notably, with uh, if you've listened to earlier versions of the pilot episode, um, the Azerbaijani goddess of birth and prosperity, Alverdi, which is so wrong on so many levels. Because uh, if you listen to the episode now, it is now Takam, the Azerbaijani king of the goats, which is an actual entity. I needed to switch it out because A, Alverdi is not their name. That's a mispronunciation. It's Alavardi, which I might still be mispronouncing, um, though I've tried to do my homework on that. And uh, Alavardi is not an Azerbaijani goddess. She is just an entity that is commonly associated with birth and fertility rites. There is nowhere in research that I could find, and I'm still kind of perplexed as to why I put that in in the first place, but they are not a god. They are not a deity. They are simply an entity that crops up time and again, and I think in a lot of the fertility-based things that are associated with them, goats and goat-related iconography are mentioned, but they are not explicitly connected to each other. So when I went back to the episode, because a lot of the times I write production essays so I can keep track and also fact check myself and make sure that things are actually what they're supposed to be. Because for a couple of, uh, being totally honest for a minute, I was trying to write a production essay as a Patreon tier, but those essays were taking a lot of work and were ended up being more time to write them than the actual episode itself. And for the given tier and everything else, it was just simply not working out. But for those first couple essays, those ensured that I had to fact check and be very on top of the research that I was doing. And it was through doing that that I realized I was not being too terribly accurate. I also apologize if you guys hear any wooden rocking in the background. I've done my best to try to edit it out. Uh, but the chair that I'm sitting on is quite old, and it's made out of these really <laughs> terrible wooden slats. Um, and it's not uncomfortable, but when I move around, it'll sometimes create, like, a, a wooden rocking sound, and that's just the way of it. Uh, that's gotten in the way of more than one recording, uh, particularly because my setup is very low-tech. I just have a Yeti microphone that doesn't even have an XLR cable or any kind of setup for that. It's just a USB straight to my computer. I have a couple foam panels on the wall around me, uh, but you may notice some light ambient noise in the background. I've done my best to try to edit it out, and hopefully we'll get better equipment and other things as time goes on. Uh, but it's pretty it's pretty chill here. There's not a lot of high-tech stuff going on. That's also wanting to, if only for the, the laughs of it, this is like the third time of trying to record this commentary. Because uh, every time that I would say it beforehand, it was just halting, and there was lots of uhs and mms, and just, it was... It was not very good, so this has taken me a long time to try to figure out how to do it. It feels like from Into the Spider-Verse, where, okay, let's do it one more time, and they always, as they introduce each of the characters, is I feel that at this point, as having done this so many times, uh, that it's starting to feel a little repetitive, but I want to make sure that, regardless of whether anyone listens to this, that it is of at least measurably good quality. I do want it to be tolerable if someone's having this... Uh, played into their uh, headphones. 
But going back to the mythology aspect, because there are a couple things that I particularly liked in a few of these episodes, and episodes, excuse me, and just wanted to touch on, because some of them are get fairly eso. I keep using the word esoteric. They can get fairly obscure. There are some things that I imagine are probably not super common knowledge, and I'm not saying that as a they should be necessarily, but a lot of the time. I learn a lot when I'm researching and writing any given episode, and I like sharing that, but still trying to find the appropriate balance of what's recognizable references versus here's a deep cut from some part in a Sanskrit mythology somewhere in, you know, old Mesopotamia that probably no one will have known about, uh, which is actually kind of what the Becky frog is in the first episode. The Becky frog is named after a frog that's, like, it's associated with the sun as it, like, dips below the horizon, and that's related to a folktale of a woman who marries a king, but only on the condition that she never be shown or given any water. She naturally says that she's thirsty one day, and then the king is like, I'll get you some water, and totally spaces on it. And then he gives it to her, and then she sinks either into the ground or into the distance. Depending on the account, it wasn't terribly clear. But there's things like that, which I love learning about, because over the course of learning it, there's other unexpected connections come up. Like when I was doing a deep dive into it, there's other similar legends and folklore to that in Germanic and even uh, Irish Celtic mythology, which how all that relates together is just absolutely fascinating. And there's, there's a whole other discussion to be had about that, from how something in Sanskrit legends was mirrored or relates to something f- so much further north in Germanic and Celtic cultures. It's just, it's super interesting. This is one of the reasons I love doing that. But not everyone would get that, or it's not entertaining to everyone, and it's also not necessarily entertaining to me all the time. I do love doing that research, but a lot of the time I also love wordplay and puns, so many good puns, puns are important, that I love including other material in it. That all doesn't always come from a place of uh, high education or of great intelligence. A lot of the times, I will simply be sitting somewhere, trying as hard as I can to think of something, quote, clever, and it just results in me making a very absurd situation out of a very mundane object. Taking, uh, taking ordinary things and taking them to absurd extremes is... Where I live and breathe. I love that style of humor, specifically uh, like uh, British absurdist humor. Uh, One of my favorite shows of all time um, is a sketch comedy show called A Bit of Fry and Laurie uh, with Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie, which is just delightfully absurd. And they are both wonderful people in general. But that kind of thing informs a lot of where a lot of the humor in the show comes from. Uh, so, for instance, in the first episode, uh, where there's a series of forks forming a union, that was from me sitting in a cafe, desperately trying to think of some other segment to round out the runtime of the first episode. And I don't even remember what I had ordered, but there was like just a fork sitting on my plate. And I began thinking about, well, uh, uh, forks are silverware is usually very important. A restaurant doesn't really work well without silverware. Does, does the silverware gets compensated? They should be entitled to some equity and financial compensation, the just amount of wages for their time. I think most of that thought process was influenced by the fact that I had helped 
the graduate assistants in the college where I graduated when I was getting my MFA, I had helped them form a student union so that they could get paid better and get uh, reasonable access to health insurance. So I think that was where a lot of that came in. But it's just small things like that where I'll see something and just wonder how if I anthropomorphized or treated it in a specifically like human way, what might happen as a result. And a lot of the times, it admittingly doesn't work. Uh, a lot of things don't make it into an episode, or they just die on the page, where, like, this is not funny or nearly as interesting as I think it is, so I'm going to have to ultimately cut it. One of my favorite uh, references in the first episode, though, is the reference to Mr. Crook in room 215C, uh, where he eats a kiwi and he subsequently explodes. While not specifically relating to fruit, uh, Mr. Crook is an actual character from a Charles Dickens novel, uh, Bleak House, which, amongst other things, is being a very long and arduous novel. In my humble opinion, I am not a huge fan of Dickens. But one of the most controversial things when that novel came out was, actually it was serialized to when the chapter came out, but when a certain individual, Mr. Crook, who is the owner of a kind of mishmash paper shop, there's knickknacks and odds and ends, it's greasy and cluttered, and if you have a moment, well, again, I'm not a particular advocate of Dickens, you should read the chapter where he is introduced, because his shop just sounds like a hoarder's nightmare. It is just absolutely terrible. But more to the point, uh, he famously, or maybe infamously, depending on who you talk to, meets his ends when another character walks into a shop and finds a large radius of burnt materials around his body, um, which has been immolated. And it's attributed to spontaneous combustion, which was a debatable thing of whether that was real or not back in Victorian London. And just the kind of absurdity of that was something that I wanted to touch on, because it was just really funny and out of nowhere. And that kind of thing is, is my bread and butter. Though I live in the United States, I tend to lean into more European sensibilities for things in terms of the show. Just, I, well, I think that mostly comes from, albeit a entirely fictional source, not actually European at all. Um, but as some of you may have guessed, based especially on the color palette of the show's logo, the Grand Budapest Hotel was a major influence in things. That kind of very quaint but slightly sophisticated uh, sensibility is something that, well, I didn't entirely want to embody. I think there's a lot of problems with that, especially for a show that is supposed to have no bars about any cultural presence or any uh, use of any kind of mythology or folklore. Having that very, very stilted European formalness that's on display in the Grand Budapest Hotel wasn't really going to work. However, I really liked the color and the kind of the music that was in the background, and even for a long time, I had tried to find music that would accommodate that, but something about that kind of Balkan state sounds where there's Romani influences and there's Russian uh, folk song influences for things like the Balalaika and Goosely, I think is how it's pronounced, I could be wrong though, um, which you should both check out performances of those instruments, by the way, they're absolutely delightful. But those were the initial ideas that I 
was thinking about when trying to produce this episode, but the music wasn't quite working. I couldn't find any that would work or I could license for the show. And I think it was my brother, ultimately, who mentioned that it has a kind of tropical vibe to it. The kind of resort by the beach kind of feeling and then testing out a few things and finding some good bossa nova music that ended up being the perfect combination of the kind of aesthetics and the more lighthearted vibe I wanted to give the show. Along with mythology and, you know, general wordplay nonsense, some of the things that work their way into the show is I have a great fondness for academia, or light academia, I suppose is the best way to describe it. Um, so working out ways to include theoretical people or places or ideas is something that always tickles my fancy in the most cerebral, boring, dry way I imaginable. I imagine. I can't conceive of that anyone enjoys this nearly as much as I do. Random references to people. Like, for for instance, um, in the first episode during the Escher Stairs, uh, where they call a post-structuralist named Michael to come look at that. Uh, the Michael they're referring to there is a reference to Michael Foucault, who, not a self-described post-structuralist, was definitely a post-structuralist. And the two dryads... Oh, that's right about the dryad. And so for something in a second, but those two dryads who get split in that one dryad who gets split into two, excuse me, and get named Ferdinand and uh, Jacques is a reference to Ferdinand's uh, Saussure and Jacques Derrida, who are both major contributors to the field of semiotics, not semantics, semiotics, which is the study of where meaning comes from. Saussure in particular, so Ferdinand Saussure had a notable idea about the signifier and the sign, which is where and how we understand meaning from words and symbols, and it's not really worth going into all right now, and that doesn't mean to say that I understand it perfectly. I have a modicum of understanding, but I just think it was particularly fun in that context because I like using some of those drier things because they provide interesting material for when you're trying to carry something to an absurd conclusion because you can get into really niche and really kind of strange ideas when you poke into um, obscure academia. Maybe not obscure, it's not that obscure, but maybe obscure for the average person who has not a care in the world for any kind of semiotic study, which is probably most people, and probably for good reason, because it's a very dense field, and for the short distance I have waded into it, it is fairly hard to understand. But on the subject of the dryads, because... For something that is so well known, I made such a really silly mistake, because I imagine nymphs have are fairly well known in popular culture. Most have a general idea that there's some kind of Greek nature spirit in some way or shape or form. Um, I thought it as well, and they show up in other kinds of media, video games, movies, things like that. But I made the terrible mistake of thinking that they present in either male or female, which is not true. Classically speaking, all nymphs present as female, which suddenly left me with a weird problem on my hand, because the reference that I'm making to Ferdinand Saussure and Jacques Derrida suddenly becomes conflicting with the accuracy of the mythology that I'm using. So, in weird fashion, the band-aid I kind of put on that is having Ferdinand 
Ferdinand and Jacques, um, having well, having Lionel misheard their names and correcting himself in the second episode to Ferdinanda and Jacqueline, keeping those intact, um, while still keeping the prone fixing the pronouns in the first episode. It was a whole it was a whole mess, and I felt so silly for having missed something so relatively easy, something that I should have known or at least have seen when uh, researching for the first episode so much. The second episode, The Obelisks, has markedly less problems. Um, One thing I will say is the episodes will get re-uploaded. There is a very good friend of mine who is writing the theme music, and I suppose that's worth talking about why, because the show is still very much in, maybe not in flux, but is still kind of a work in progress. There are certain formatting things which I haven't quite figured out and don't know if they really work or if they don't. Um, most notably in the fifth episode, which I'll talk a little bit more about, is it doesn't have nearly as much music in the background as the first four do. And things like that and decisions about what makes it into an episode and what works stylistically are still things I'm trying to figure out. But that neither being here nor there for the time being. The second episode came out, or the the main story in the second episode about the obelisks came out of Admittingly, my love for just the strange names we give to groups of things, um, like a pod of octopi or a gaggle of geese and things like that, I just am so immensely tickled anytime I find some new word for something. Um, another thing is, I think the original idea for this must have been around fall, because uh, I remember thinking about birds and migrating and thinking, what's something weird that I could do with that? Because a lot of animals migrate. What's something that definitely doesn't migrate? Well, what's something that doesn't move? Obelisks don't move. So what if there was a bunch of obelisks that not only moved, but they had a biannual migration? That seems like it would be interesting and fun. And then naturally, my next thought was, what do you call a group of migrating obelisks? And my answer to that, and officially, there is no other word for this, is an escarpment is the name of a group of moving obelisks. And that's all I have to say on that matter. But no, that's really all there is to it. Sometimes I will just stumble across a word or an idea that, for no other reason than I find it personally amusing or just very whimsical, I want to figure out some way to use it in the episode. A great follow-up example to that in this same episode is Cynthia, who is a rotodendron, which is just a fun word to say, and I'm not ashamed to admit that's the entire reason why that word is in the script, and why she's a rotodendron, just because I enjoy saying it, and it's fun. Something else that was fun and necessitated a change was the Satori security team that's mentioned in the first episode. The Satori are actually a group of monkey-esque kind of looking monsters. Monsters isn't really the right word. The Japanese term for it is yokai, which is something in between a demon and a spirit. It kind of depends on the tale and the version of the translation. I don't actually think there is a one-to-one translation of it, but they're essentially uh, monkey-like forest spirits that inhabit primarily around the mountains of Hida and Mino, I want to say, is is where they are. I could be mistaken about that. Uh, But their main way of antagonizing people, they do physical harm, but the main reason they're in the show is I was looking for some mythological creature that has some level of clairvoyance or, you know, telepathy. They can read other people's minds. That would be ideal as a, as a security force for the hotel. 
It turns out there's not too many creatures in mythology anywhere that I could find that have that capability. So, admittingly, I was a little lazy. I was just like, okay, I'll just use these in this part of the episode because that seems right. And then the more I read about it after the first episode aired, I quickly realized they are either chaotic evil or just chaotic neutral. One of their whole bits is they can read people's minds and they like to read the other person's thoughts, and then save them faster than the original host can save them themselves. So they're kind of telepathic trolls is what it came down to. Uh, That's a gross oversimplification of a lot of the other stories, but of that particular ability, that's one of the reasons how, or one of the ways that they use that. Which, when looking at the hotel and specifically at a security force, that's obviously problematic. And I wanted to do something with that because if Lionel's had to work with these kind of chaotic um, monkey spirits, then that would naturally open the door for other things and other kind of security providers. I will say, when talking about the Dianea Mushipula, or Mushipula, I still don't know how to say that correctly. I've tried consulting various different Latin pronunciation guides, and none of them have been very helpful. So if anyone listening to this knows, is a botanist or a scientist, or knows just Latin, and can please help me, I would be immensely grateful. I would be happy. I'm going to up, re-upload the episode once I figure out how the freaking heck to say that, because I don't know. And it was really hard, and I eventually just gave up uh, in trying to figure out what the heck that Latin pronunciation of that was. But it was a lot of fun setting up the the Venus flytraps along with Fly on the Wall LLC, because um, figuring out those alternative names for things um, is really fun, because it's a, it's a nice narrative misdirect. Speaking of those kinds of names, one of the things, and I don't know why, but something that I always love is finding out other names for just the same thing, not even groups. So, in the second episode, uh, for the obelisks, when Lionel is talking about how Emmett and this group of ants are going to come change the, um, ball points at the end of all of their pens and other things, I had a lot of fun coming up and researching all the different names for kinds of ants. Uh, the name Emmet just means ant. Uh, Pissmeyer is the name for an ant. Formicidae is the Latin name for ant. Um, but actually, doubling back to Pissmeyer because that is a really unique case because it's not just the name of an ant. It is the specific name of a figure of an ant on a emblazoned shield in heraldry. And if you don't know what heraldry is, it's the art of designing kind of coats of arms and royal sigils and things like that. And if you ever are really bored one day and have way too much time, looking into the rules of heraldry is fascinating because there are certain colors and certain constructions of a shield and what kind of uh, fields and just uh, there's there's so many different things to consider with that. Uh, One of the things I remember most when researching into that, which was, my gosh, that was a big rabbit hole. Um... But one of the most interesting things is there are colors and then there are metals. And the two metals, if I remember correctly, are gold and silver. And you're not allowed to, you're not allowed to lay them on top of each other. Uh, at least in medieval culture. There is one exception that I could tell. And that is for the church. The church is allowed to lay metal and gold uh, metals on their heraldry and coat of arms and things like that. Which I thought that was just very interesting. But... All of that to say that Pissmeyer is the name of an ant when it figures on a shield or a, f- a field, which is kind of the main canvas of uh, heraldry and coats of arms. 
whenever there's an ant there, that is called a pismire. So now you know. Along with the obelisks, which was just me having a lot of fun, the whole storm thing in the second episode came out of a time uh, back in college when I was staying with my uh, brother, who lives out in the desert. And they get massive monsoon seasons out there. Just torrents of rain and winds that are just a sight to behold. These gargantuan supercell thunderstorm clouds that just roll in over the mountains. And it's, 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 if you don't like thunderstorms, it's very terrifying because they can get very fierce very fast. Uh, One time I was out walking and this little kind of squall of a thunderstorm, this little kind of thunderhead passed by and the wind whipped up and the rain got so fierce. There was a little canopy um, one of those kind of uh, pavilion tents that you can get that if you ever go to like an outdoor market or something or any kind of uh, event, uh, but it's like held down with all these like weights and cinder blocks. And the wind was so strong that I had to like duck down as the wind carried this whole pavilion, cinder blocks and all, and chucked it over a rock wall. And then it just immediately disappeared. And that was one of the more harrowing experiences I've ever had, is having this whole thing just yeeted up into the sky, um, and then everything returned to normal. It was incredibly surreal. But that that's the level of storm kind of ferocity and spontaneity that occurred uh, when I was visiting my brother in the desert. And I remember waking up the next morning and going outside, and those leaves scattered everywhere, those sand that had, like, washed down from the mountains that was coating all the streets. Leaves were hanging and, like, just coating everyone's yards, uh, broken branches littering everywhere. Just the the feeling that the world was had been, like, beaten up, but also that it was somehow renewed at the same time. I don't know, it's just, it's just an interesting feeling. Um... That in writing the storm here, a lot of that kind of imagery and things is where that came from, is that personal experience when I was out in the desert visiting my brother. Let's jump forward a little bit to the third episode, uh, if only for time. But the main reason that the third episode is the theater is kind of a very tongue-in-cheek nod to where I met my partner. We were both doing some theater stuff for a show kind of at the tail end of COVID. It was kind of the reopening of some local theaters. Uh, I had been asked to take part of it and didn't know she was going to show up. Uh, I had a massive crush on her beforehand, and that show is kind of what brought us together. So one of the things that I wanted to pay homage to that is not only um, for us allowing to meet, but we both have been doing a lot of collaborative theater for the last year and a half, almost two years. Um, And my partner is an actress, so wanting some kind of homage to that thing which has played such a very big part in my life. Uh, as to why the theater is performing The Temptations, uh, that's for no other reason than uh, Ain't Too Proud is a damn good musical and everyone should go listen to it because it is amazing. I will also say this episode is where I kind of had to figure out what the heck I was doing with the Latrice situation. That whole thing erupted in the first episode because, again, it's weird having an immovable object like a topiary, which, for those of you who don't know what a topiary is, is just those kind of sculpted trees and uh, shrubs that you see in movies on, like, really big estates or in, like, old uh, manor houses that are, like, carved into the shapes of animals. Not carved, they're they're trimmed into the shapes of animals. That's the the right terminology. But yeah, having a character who was that and the animal they were carved into was nowhere near their original biome was just something that I had a lot of fun with. But then, since they were missing, realizing... 
I did need to do something with that. And as time went on, the kind of extension of that got further and further out. Um, because I don't write all of these out ahead. There's no seasons of Hotel Daydream. Uh, everything that happens from episode to episode is determined in the two-week interval between releases. There's no, as of right now, backlog of different things. A lot of it is me figuring out what I'm going to write as it happens. There's a couple ideas that I save up and use here and there ahead of time. Or I save them ahead of time and then use them as the episodes that they're relevant in occur. But the whole thing with Latrice was something that was put together kind of as it happens. And it was in this episode I kind of had to realize either it's going to become a whole thing or they I just got to let it go. They, they find Latrice in some silly or whimsical scenario and it just moves on in the original uh, drafts of the script it was like that there was just kind of just a written off wacky thing that they encounter uh, they being lionel and all the rest of the hotel staff they encounter and latrice is there and everyone's happy but the more i was writing it the less right that felt it felt rushed and weird and didn't feel like it took the situation seriously and having a li little more of a sober attitude or tone to the show was something that I wanted to experiment with a little bit. So here was where I was kind of trying to lay the seeds of some other things moving forward. And I hope they've gone off well. Uh, it's been inter interesting and also very frightening experience trying to come up with that uh, as it was occurring and as the episodes were being released. One other thing to touch on uh, in the section shortly after that is the doubloons leaking from the ceiling. Um, part of that was coming from a not-so-subtle uh, critique of consumerism and capitalism, uh, because those are uh, both very dangerous and damaging things. And part of it was, it's not really escapable here in reality, but I was curious, what does a business or community look like when money or profit is not the thing and cannot be the thing that drives it. In fact, in reference to the, the first episode where the salesman occurs, it's outright projected as a antagonistic force. It is outright not a good thing. And wanting to have a nod here and there to that. So part of Hoto Daydream is figuring out and experimenting with what a world outside of that kind of economic system looks like. And specifically for this section, um, I need to just put a reference to campaign finance reform into the episode because that's important and we should talk about that kind of thing more. Moving on to the next section, though, which I had a lot of fun and I don't know quite where I'm going to go with it, if I'm being totally honest right now. But it was the whole thing because the labyrinth, which is a reference to the labyrinth of Crete, I believe, in Greek mythology where the Minotaur was imprisoned and all of that fun stuff. But the labyrinth is canonically uh, built by Daedalus, and that it needed some upkeep and some other things. But how exactly that was going to work out uh, was something I was really unsure of. And still, to, at this moment, there are several directions I want to take that. But one thing I wanted to get out of the way is not having the plot hook idea that the big surprise is that Daedalus has found that Icarus, his son, has died. Because most people recognize that story. It's a idiom um, for failure or being too ambitious is to be like Icarus and fly too close to the sun. It's a whole expression. So I wanted to do away with the obvious of that. Um, and also wanting to go a little bit further because until doing research for this episode, I didn't know that Daedalus had another son or Icarus had a brother in Ipix. 
whose main literary reference, as far as I can remember, I think is in Virgil's Aeneid. Uh, he's a help, a helper to Achilles. I want to say I could be misremembering that, but he's definitely his most prominent mention is in the Aeneid. But having all of this other mythology and things, which was considering myself fairly well versed in Greek mythos, that was a very good learning opportunity for looking into all that. And I wanted it to open a door to a more personal story between uh, Mademoiselle Rouge and some of her old contacts and the things. Uh, but what exactly and where exactly that will go uh, remains to be seen. We'll jump on down to episode four, The Expedition. Uh, and this was one of the things where trying to work out exactly what the balance was between the A story and the B story. The A story being whatever was carrying over for multiple episodes from one to the next, and the B stories just being those little segments that are more there, maybe not as totally throwaway lines, but also trying to figure out what's the balance between them. Because the B stories are very, very short and succinct, and they're where a lot of the humor of the show comes from, or at least I'd like to think so. That's their intent. Because they're so short, um, there's not a lot of room for dramatic buildup or any kind of longer character trajectory. There's just maybe a pun, some wordplay, some kind of absurdist punchline, and then we move on. And I have a lot of fun writing those, but they take up considerably less space than the A stories do. And wanting to make sure there's an appropriate balance to that was a struggle in this episode, as the kind of the whole thing with the expedition uh, was taking up more and more uh, screen time, for lack of a, a better word. And that was the same thing that I kind of had to deal with in the fifth episodes. It's hard to talk about them without talking about them in tandem, uh, because the Basileers is by far the most weighted episode of all the five in terms of very much just trying to address the A story that's going on, and there's a handful of B-story material, but it's mostly about trying to resolve the Latrice storyline. But anyway, that balance was a hard one to figure out for episode four in the expedition, uh, but I'd like to think that it came off fairly well. Uh, one of my favorite, switching gears a little bit, of the, the B-stories, however, was the Wizard of Odds. I often am not the person to crystallize a particular play on words, I happen to be friends with some truly wonderful, inspiring people um, that are artists, uh, photographers, dancers, painters, musicians, and it's truly a blessing that I just spend as much time as I do, and they give me so much material to work with. Because not everything in Hotel Daydream is a riff off of someone or someone else's material or idea, but I like to think the strongest ones usually have their roots in some pun or something else that I was just lucky enough to hear, if I'm being perfectly honest. The Wizard of Odds was one such thing that came out of it. Uh, it's a very wonderful friend of mine whose name is Jack. He's a photographer and musician, uh, excellent guitar player. Um, and we were just playing a board game one night, and they had mentioned something about that. And I think he had initially said it as a mispronunciation of the Wizard of Oz. Um, but then uh, he said it as the Wizard of Oz and then corrected himself. And in that moment, like, the whole thing kind of flashed before me. And I think the reason why I latched onto it so quickly for having some kind of play, using that play on words, is I don't have very good memories of The Wizard of Oz. I know a lot of people like the film, but it's very iconic. Uh, it always scared me as a kid. Uh, I don't know why something about the film and the bright colors and all these other things was just, I think, too much. And 
yeah, just there was a lot in there. There was a lot of emotional baggage to unpack. So when I started thinking about this particular segment, my mind immediately went to a very dark place. If I had switched it on its head where the wizard was the one who was who was wronged and Dorothy and all of her companions were actually a bunch of like insurrectionists trying to take over their kingdom and the Wizard of Odds was just a political exile uh, from their home. Uh, yeah, that's that's where my mind goes when I think of that. That's that was my thought process. I did have a lot of fun turning the the lion, the Tin Man, and the Scarecrow into kind of a sinister group of of people, because uh, a lot of their like iconic wants are are strangely readily available to that, which I thought was very interesting and a lot of fun to play with. One other segment in the Wizard of Odds uh, section that I had a lot of fun with was. Um, kind of underskirting the expectation of tarot cards. We here in the United States at least seem like we only think of tarot cards in this kind of occult, macabre, mysterious, spiritualism kind of way, when in reality, tarot cards, or tarot is just short for terracchini, which is a card game that's from Italy, and it's no more complicated or weird than that. It was only in the last uh, century or two that they've taken on or a more pronounced kind of spiritual aspect to them, but Tedekini, um is just a playing card game. Um, one that actually looks fairly fun from uh, the little research I was able to to do in finding people playing it online and on YouTube videos. So being able to kind of pull up those expectations when uh, Lionel draws the tower card and then the Wizard of Oz just being like, it's just a deck of cards, my friends, don't read into it too much. Uh, I had a lot of fun with because it's... We tend to not think of it in that way, and the historical tradition of Tedekini playing cards is oh so much more mundane than we usually accredit them. Uh, the next segment that was str- I struggled to write was the whole PR campaign uh, portion, where Lionel understandably realizes that because Latrice is mi- missing, her family is understandably upset, and that it's taking them so long to find her if she can be found, that they're getting angry and the hotel's reputation is suffering as a result. I personally hate the idea of PR, and the only reason it's in this episode is realizing that's probably what Lionel and the hotel would do. They are trying to present a certain image and not make that a false one, but more have a dedicated position to interacting with the public and answering questions. Another reason, and arguably a bigger reason I wanted that section, was for a, the Kumiho character, Im Taeyong. Um, and for those of you who don't know, Kum, a Kumiho is A, a slightly derogatory term for a woman in uh, Korean. Um, it's not quite the equivalent of bitch like we would say here, but it's a reference to a Korean folklore, or a creature in Korean folklore, which is a fox, which has achieved a super long life um, and has been given the ability to transform into a magical, beautiful woman. So a fox of nine tails who can transform into a very uh, tempting seductress who often lures young men away from their homes and then kills them and eats them, I believe. So calling someone a kumiho is not necessarily good. It's the same thing as calling someone a very conniving, uh, scheming individual. That said, something very interesting I found when researching them was in the oldest accounts of kumihos in Korean folklore, the Kumiho is often not evil. If anything, it's the one usually that's taken advantage of by uh, human behavior, that the Kumiho is very naive to the kind of 
schemes and manipulations of, of men and women that it encounters. So one of the things that I want to try to do with this character is putting a character that is canonically viewed as untrustworthy, but there's an inherent tension in terms of who is the untrustworthy one here, and making them the kind of the spokesperson of public trust for the hotel. I don't, it, it, it seems like it has really interesting dr- dramatic implications or possibilities. Um, and moving M. Taeyong into that position was something that I really was really trying to do and really curious about and really wanted to write. But it did require that the hotel does now have a PR section, which I'm still not entirely comfortable with, but it does fit the story and does work well. A much more lighthearted section was in the housekeeping uh, report for the fifth episode, fourth episode of the expedition, excuse me, was the pillow fort um that housekeeping has to deconstruct because one of the things that i do in trying to write episodes is look at various different stories for hotels horror stories or things weird requests that hotels have had to deal with um and one that was particularly heartwarming actually was a family had asked housekeeping in the hotel they were going to to build them a pillow fort so their kids would have something fun to look forward to when they finally got there after a long day of traveling and it was just a very very sweet little kind of testimony Uh, for this hotel. And I thought about what would happen if you took that to the extreme, and you had individuals staying at the hotel who had literally built a a literal castle fort out of all the cushions and furniture and whatnot, such that it was impregnable, and the the hotel housekeeping staff couldn't actually deconstruct it. That led me on some really interesting research into the, not only the history of castle design, but the relative anonymity of castle design. Because especially in Normandy, England, uh, not Normandy, England, um, but when William the Conqueror came over and the French were in control of the English courts and all that fun jazz, there's a lot of record about who the castles belonged to, who the lord or lady was that resided there, but there's not a lot of information about the designers themselves. They seem to have kind of drifted off more into obscurity. We know a couple things about a few of them, uh, Gundolf, Robert de Bellum, and Henry Yevele, uh, to name three, which is why they're in the episode, because I was actually able to find them in the castles that they subsequently built. But it was just a fascinating bit of structural history that I had no idea. Normally you think of those, there's so much attribution to authorship now that the idea that someone who created and designed something so large has essentially faded into historical obscurity uh, is just fascinating. The last thing I'll say for episode four for the expedition is the whole segment about the different kinds of polyhedrals. If you don't know what a polyhedral is, it's a type of shape that's made up of regular uh, polygons or faces. And if you need a visual for what that looks like, um, if you've ever played D&D or any kind of uh, TTRPG that uses the seven normal kind of um, polyhedral dice, uh, if you take out the two D10s or the percentage die, that's what they're that's what you're left with is regular polyhedrals or at least that's you're left with the platonic solids with the platonic polyhedrals there was originally a bit in the script for episode four about lionel being prejudiced against shapes that weren't platonic solids things like a prism or an isosceles triangle or things like that and a the more i wrote that the more it started it just it it didn't feel right to have that as part of Lionel's character where he had this kind of prejudice. Um that took a form on something else with the basilisks basilisks later on, excuse me. But the shapes still seemed like an interesting bit of fodder, 
And I was curious about what exactly there is and looking more into topology, which is not, this is not a correct definition of it, but it's kind of the study of shapes and dynamics and how things work in three-dimensional space or just in space, no matter how many dimensions there are. Um, There's a terrible definition. Uh, I'd encourage you to go look it up because that is, I can guarantee you, not accurate, at least in one way. But it's a very fascinating field. And one thing that I discovered while looking at that is, typically, you're told that there are five regular polyhedra. There are the five platonic solids. There's a pyramid uh, with a triangular base, so not four sides, but three. There's things like a cube. There's dodecahedrons. There's all different kinds of things. But there's not a lot of talk about what lies beyond those five shapes. And the more I dug into that, the weirder things get. You have shapes that are made out of just line segments. There have ways that you can reflect a shape, and that results in a whole other structure. There are skews and petrial polyhedra, which are a whole other can of worms. There's a parohedra, which are just totally out there. There are tilings, which are shapes that are just infinitely extending flat versions of repeating structures. It's some really interesting stuff. Again, my cerebral sense of interest, maybe not for everybody, but if you have a random bit of time to look into those, it's really interesting and very eye-opening to the possibilities that are out there in terms of shapes and solids and topology and all that. Moving on to episode 5, the Basileers, one of the first things I wanted to address was the appearance of Ushbarine uh, in the last part of episode 4, because I kind of dropped that name and didn't provide any context, and the more I write the show, the more I realized I don't just have to throw things into the script, I should give them a little bit more context, so at least there's an ability that if someone wanted to know more, they would know what the heck they're even looking for. Because Ushbarine, who is the Lithuanian goddess of land borders, or might not be, was going to become a much more prominent character, and I needed to explain more about them anyway, which is why the first segment of episode 5 is so long. I say Ushbarine might not be the uh, goddess of land borders, not because there's any question about what she would be sovereign over, what kind of domain or kind of arcane thing that she would be in charge of, but more because a lot of Lithuanian mythology and folklore comes from a mishmash of different sources, which, under historical scrutiny, has not been shown to be terribly strict or terribly rigorous. Part of that is because it's so difficult to find and there's not a lot of records from them, um, but it's also due in part to one man named... Theodoras Narbutas, um, which I may not be saying his name correctly, but he contributed a vast amount of ideas and research to the collection of Lithuanian uh, folk history and chronicles and uh, mythology. And to be fair, he's done some very, very good work. But it's also highly suspect, some of the reports that he had. Um, so there's a lot of speculation today about what's included in his uh, chronicles. Uh, it's a nine-volume uh, history of Lithuania uh, from the Middle Ages up to the Union of Lublin, I think is how you say it. Uh, but in that is included a lot of different things, and it's somewhat suspect. Uh, so some of the sources and things that I have for Lithuanian uh, gods and deities, the whole pantheon, are maybe not historically correct. And so when I say Ushbarine may or may not be, it's anyone's guess if that's something that uh, uh, Theodoras Narbatus made up, 
or if another historian found and verified, we just don't know. So that kind of ambiguity is something I do want to be upfront about, because I'm not sure, and I am not a professionally trained historian or archivist. Uh, I'm just a person doing some research as best they can, uh, so I may be incorrect. One thing I most assuredly got incorrect is the pronunciation of Ibn Sina's name. Uh, he has a much longer patriarchal name that is customary for Islamic names of that. He's a, most, he's a very famous philosopher from the Islamic Golden Age, and I was doing my best to try to pronounce his name correctly, and know categorically that I did not. One of the reasons I wanted to try and have that in there is because that is his full name. That is the name that he would be recognized with and he is historically known for in that part of the world. Um, if you look up his name, Avincena, uh, the romanization of the kind of corruption of his name, you will find it. But one of the things is wanting to try to do justice to his name and the full extent of it is I wanted to try to pronounce the whole thing. One of the things that I was nervous about with that, though, is... Saying his full name, which is fairly long, and then summing it up at the end with a shorter one, has the effect of a punchline. And I did not want his name to be the butt of any kind of joke. Uh, the main joke of it is that he and René D, or which is short for René Descartes, have very similar ideas about the nature of existence, or at least very similar thought experiments. And I thought it was just very interesting to put them together in a room, because René D comes from Renaissance medieval Europe, and Ibn Sina comes from the Islamic Golden Age, and I would imagine they have, would have a lot to say to each other if they ever had the chance. But that is neither here nor there. Just wanting to own up to trying to do justice to a Persian name and totally botching it. And that's something that I will be working on. And if and when, uh, for the friends that I have that speak Farsi, that I get the A-OK -okay and I can officially say it correctly, uh, it will be replaced. But until then, I am aware that I have horribly butchered that man's name, and that is not okay, but I also do not want to remove it because that is his full name. That is in keeping with the tradition of the time that he was from, and that's important, and I don't want to wash over that. The last major thing that I wanted to talk about from episode 5 uh, were the two basileers who come to uh, try to find Latrice and hunt down the basilisks. The first of which is an Indian folk deity uh, known as Gogaji. I think that's how you pronounce it. Uh, part of me wants to say that's a Japanese inflection to put it on the I at the end, Gogaji, and not Gogaji. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, that is a correct pronunciation. If anyone knows factually that that is incorrect, please let me know. The episode will be adjusted accordingly. But he is a folk deity, he is a folk deity uh, from a, not from the region, but in a similar region to Rajasthan, which is the upper kind of western side of uh, India, which borders on uh, Pakistan. And he's celebrated there with many different festivals in the Hindu calendar and is most notable for his protection of his followers against snakes and snake bites which seemed perfect for someone who was hunting down and needed to capture a basilisk. The second person and the companion that he has with him is none other than Ricky Ticky Tabby, who is from uh, Rudyard Kipling's uh, famous book, The Jungle Book. Uh, Ricky Ticky Tabby is protecting a family from black cobras. Uh, Ricky defeats them and has a final battle with one of the cobras, Nagaina, uh, in her den and emerges victorious. What I didn't know before researching this is that story of Rikki Tikki Tabby is actually based 
on a uh, kind of uh, animal fable from an Indian book uh, called the Panchatantra. It's from the fifth book of that, um, or the fifth book in that book, or fifth, it's called a book. Uh, I'm not sure what the technical name is for the Panchatantra, but it's a collection of animal fables, and the story that Ricky Tiki Tavi is based on is from the fifth book of those of that collection. Uh, it's much different than what we're familiar with. The original story is a cautionary tale about making decisions in haste. Uh, it's about a woman who uh, leaves a mongoose with her child, and when she comes back, uh, she meets the mongoose who is like face and mouth is covered in blood, and she instantly kills the mongoose because she thinks that it killed her child, only for her to come back and find the child is fine with like a dead cobra next to it and realizes the mongoose uh, was actually protecting her child. And the moral of the story is don't don't be hasty. I would try to pronounce the name of this fifth book of the Panchatantra, but it's more complex than I'm even able to give an attempt for. And given what I've just tried to figure out uh, with Ibn Sina, I didn't want to more ingloriously butcher another very important name. But I encourage you to look it up because uh, not only that book, but the rest of the Panchatantra is full of some very interesting things. And there's lots of interesting crossovers between that and another collection of animal fables from other cultures. The most notable one that we would probably be familiar with here uh, in the West, or at least for me in the West, is uh, Aesop's fables. It has some very strong commonalities. And there's not enough evidence to say that one necessarily influenced the other. Uh, the common consensus right now is that many different cultures kind of came to these animalistic fables independently, and then they kind of got shared and mixed around uh, as time went on. One thing that I did have a lot of fun with, uh, with those two characters, Gogaji and Ricky, is when trying to describe uh, Gogaji's attire and what he looks like, there's many festivals that are held for him and lots of depictions readily available uh, that I could look at. One of the reoccurring themes that I noticed, which I thought was very interesting, is he's commonly depicted with a black cobra on his shoulder. And that gave me the idea because in Ricky Tiki Tavi, Ricky battles Nagaina off kind of off screen, quote unquote. They fight inside of Nagaina's den, and Ricky emerges seemingly triumphant. I thought it would be very interesting if the cobra that Gogaji had on his shoulder uh, was Nagaina who had survived and had been saved by Gogaji, and now she and Ricky have to work together again after such uh, a long time, and uh, they don't like each other very much for uh, understandable reasons. I just thought that was an interesting narrative opportunity that came up as I was learning about the appearance of what Gogaji typically is in the depictions that circulate around uh, the various festivals that celebrate him. And with that, I think we're going to wrap up. We're already over an hour, so... There's so many other things that I could mention here, but I just wanted to make this as a thank you to you guys. You can see a little bit more of the behind the scenes, my ideas, and the kind of the way that Hotel Daydream gets written and what goes into a given episode. And more importantly, just to say thanks for helping get the show to 100 downloads. Um, we'll see if I make more of these things. If that's something that people want, I can put them up on the Patreon. Um, and if not, there certainly will be another one when we cross 500 downloads. So until then, I hope you all enjoy the show, have enjoyed listening, and enjoyed your stay at the hotel, and I will see you next time.